Good morning, everyone. It's been a very good morning thus far. And I really appreciated what Andrew had to say. I'm not sure if that's what you'd call an introduction to my message or a good conclusion to the message, but it goes together very well. I'm going to talk about God's promises. And as we think of what Jehoshaphat did, he definitely sought after God to fulfill his promises. As he, we read through that prayer, he reminded God of what he had promised. God, you said that if we have enemies come and we call out to you, you're going to deliver us. And uh, just an excellent companion message, I guess you'd say. Probably not going to say anything new. It's something we've heard before, but it's always good to be reminded. And, uh, you know, perhaps God has some trial before us that we don't know about, and we'll remember some of these things when that time comes. I'd like to start off with, uh, well, no, first of all, as I'll go through a little bit here, and then I'm going to ask you to share promises that you think of that are in the Bible, maybe promises that mean a lot to you. If you have a testimony to share with them, that's fine. But just to mention different promises that God has made to us. Start with, I'd like to contrast God's promises with ours. We make promises to each other at various times and for various reasons. A promise is, in a general sense, a declaration, written or verbal, made by one person to another, which binds the person who makes it, either in honor, conscience, or law, to do or forbear a certain act specified. A declaration which gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect or claim the performance or forbearance of the act. A promise is, I think, always made to benefit the other person. If it's not made to benefit the other person, we'd call that a threat. But if it's a promise, it's made to benefit the other person, give him a surety that something's going to happen, or whatever. It's to benefit the other person. Some of the promises that we make that are a little more significant, maybe, if we take a loan out at the bank, we promise to pay it back with interest in a certain amount of time. And the bank says, yes, that's fine, but I want this proof. I'm going to, if you don't make that payment back, we're going to take this away from you, this certain thing. They want collateral. We also make a promise when we get married. That's a lifelong promise. <clears throat> should take a lot of contemplation because it's so significant. And it's also um, witnessed by many people. We call them witnesses, not just the ones that are up here watching, but everybody is witnessing this promise that we are making. And as we make promises, there's times when we can't fulfill the promises because we're human. 
But in a marriage vow, we can fulfill those promises that we make, even though it's a lifetime promise. Um, Sometimes we think if we promise something, if we say, well, I'll do something and I promise to do it, then that somehow strengthens our words. Should it be that way? It's like children sometimes would say, I have a secret to tell you if you don't tell anybody else. Oh, okay, I won't. Do you promise? Yeah, I promise. And if they don't promise, then they feel like, well, maybe I can actually tell them because I didn't promise, you know. Well, it shouldn't be that way with us. In Matthew 5.37, it says, But let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. So when we say something, it's the same as a promise. We say we're going to do something. Is it right for us to just change our mind after we say we're going to do something? I just changed my mind. I decided not to. I think we need to be careful with that. If uh, it's just for personal benefit, that I don't think that should happen. I know I've been caught with that already. Oh, I just changed my mind. And later I thought, you know what? That was just for my personal benefit. I don't think that was the right thing to do. But there's always circumstances that arise that keep us from doing what we said. In James 4.13, it tells us how to deal with that. 13 to 15. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city. And continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. We probably should say that more than we do, shouldn't we? Lord willing, we'll do this. Realizing that our life is in his hands. Now as we think of God's promises to us, they are all promises for our benefit, 100%. And as I was thinking of, um, I don't know if I can contrast this with the gods of this world, because we have never worshipped another god like the Indians did, or people in other lands, they have other gods, Hindus. So when they turn from a god like that to our god, It's such a vast difference because their gods are only wanting to be appeased, so they're not as angry as they would be otherwise. But our God is always looking for our good. It's not that we need to appease Him so He's less angry. But He makes many promises, many promises, and they're all for our good. And He made them of His own will. It's not because we begged Him to make these promises. looked up different places to see how many promises of God there are in the Bible. And, of course, there's varying numbers. One was 3,573, another was 5,467, and another one was 7,487 promises. So those are pretty exact numbers, but who knows what's right. 
There's a lot anyway. Way more than we can remember. I think I'll uh, open it up now for people to share their promises if they've thought of any. I'd like to hear what you have thoughts on. How about uh, Thursday it was warm? I think it was Thursday. It's getting colder. <laughs> Winter is here. Yep. Like it or not. And it doesn't matter if there's global warming or not, does it? Jim? like that one too.
Where did you say it was found? One that was read this morning? Okay, I was didn't listen to the numbers, but it's very similar to what Jehoshaphat said. First commandment with promise. promises in there (laughs) okay thank you for sharing those that's very good I found it very interesting that uh, later on I'm going to go through some of the promises that I like and I think most of them were mentioned here this morning talk about them some but these are promises that God himself made to us his people 100% for our benefit. What a comfort we can take in that. He has also made promises to his enemies, or maybe their threats. We aren't going to talk about them this morning. I hope that never applies to us. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. There is no doubt, no doubt at all, that God will accomplish what he has promised and do for us to the glory of God. <clears throat> also in Matthew twenty-four thirty-five, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So the promises of God are more sure than heaven and earth itself. Someday heaven and earth will pass away. But God's promises will last beyond that. As we read about Abraham in the Old Testament, it's always interesting to see how God dealt with him and the many promises that he made to Abraham. That was probably the first person that we read about that God made such great promises to. And we know they all came to pass. I'm going to read some of them. Genesis 12:2, he said, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Genesis 13:15, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. So first of all, he promises Abraham to make him a great nation. And then he promises him this certain land for his nation to dwell in. 
13.16, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And then in 15.5, He brought him forth in the night time and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And then it says that he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. I don't know if something changed in Abraham's life at that point or not, but it mentions it specifically after that promise. He believed in the Lord. And I think before that he had tried to take some things into his own hand to accomplish the promises because he was childless and God said we're going to have a great nation so he tried to figure out through the flesh how to make these promises come to pass. But God said no, that's not what I'm thinking. And at this point after God said again that your seed is going to be great and then Abraham believed the Lord. Chapter 17, 19, And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. The promises of God to Abraham were very personal. They don't really apply to us, do they? But are his promises to us any less personal? All these promises that were mentioned even this morning, they are given to us as individuals. We can put our name in those promises and claim them for our own. Some of God's promises are conditional and some are not. Such as, God promised to make a new heaven and a new earth. That doesn't matter how we behave. Or if we meet some condition, that's going to happen. And like Laverne said, Jesus promised to return for us, to return again. And that doesn't depend on our obedience. He's going to return anyway. Might not be for us, but he's going to return. But the ones that are given to us personally are all conditional, I believe. If we meet the conditions, then... God will do what he promised. And that can be intimidating because think of God in heaven saying, if you do something, then I will bless you. Well, God is all-powerful, so even his lowly conditions that we need to meet might be more than we can handle. But they're not. Not at all. It's not something that he teases us with and says, if you accomplish this, then I'll, I'll give you good things. But he makes sure that we can meet all the conditions that he gives us. So the first one, that promise that I'm going to talk about, is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purposes. This is probably one of my favorite promises, favorite verses. And I don't know if you've noticed that it seems like it comes out fairly often in my messages. Um, But anyway, yeah, it's one of my favorite. Because life can be very difficult, very hard to figure out. It doesn't make sense. 
Where is God when all these things happen? Life seems to be unfair. <clears throat> but this is a promise that it doesn't matter how it looks, that we can know that God is still in control. And not only is He in control, but He's doing things for our good. That we will be better off because God is dealing with us like this. He knows way better what we need than we do ourselves. And the condition that is given here is that we love God. They work together for good to them that love God. Is that a simple thing to do, to love God? I sometimes find it difficult. Not necessarily to love God, but to know, do I really love God? You know, God is not something I can see and hear. Do I really love Him? Well, God has given us some um, indications that we can look at our lives and see if we, these things are evident in our lives, then we do love God. First one is, if we love His will. Do we love to do God's will and love His commandments? If ye love me, keep my commandments. Well, we know God's commandments, and we can a little bit more uh, check our lives if we love those or not. It's a little bit easier to tell, a little bit more of an indication. Another indication is if we love his people. He that loveth not his brother, how can he love God? Do we love God's people? And also, do we hate the world and the flesh? Whosoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Well, we can see the world around us, and we know how our flesh is, is, uh, tries to go against God's will. So we can a little more go by those indications, whether we love God or not. Next one is in 1 Corinthians 10.13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So God knows exactly what we can take. God knows our weaknesses better than we do. I thought of situation there with Peter when he denied him. Jesus knew that Peter was not going to be able to stand that, but he also knew the end result, that he was going to repent and come back to him, even though there was a way of escape there for Peter if he wanted it. He promised to make a way of escape when we are tempted, but the condition is that we need to take the escape route. God isn't going to push us through that escape route. He's not going to make us take that escape. And if we don't hate the temptation and look for the escape route, we will be overcome. If we really admit it, sometimes we don't hate the temptations like we should. And that's always a problem. Next one is in James 1, 5, and 6. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, 
nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. We all feel like we fit into that category, don't we, of lacking wisdom. And if you don't feel that way, I think you should. We all need wisdom. We don't have enough of our own. And it says that God gives abundantly, not just enough to get by. It says he giveth to all men liberally. And upbraideth not. I really like that part of it. He doesn't scold us because we're so ignorant. It would seem very easy for him to do that because he can see everything from beginning to end. And Well, can't you just think a little bit and know how to take care of this problem? But he never does that. He upbraideth not. The condition that we need to meet is pretty simple. Well, maybe it's not simple. I don't know. First of all, we need to ask of God. Sometimes, maybe like um, Andrew talked about Jehoshaphat, how he was willing to just ask God. He didn't try to figure things out on his own. We are more that way sometimes than we should be. We try to figure it out on our own first rather than asking God. Just admit, God, that we don't have the wisdom and we want you to answer these questions that we have. And also then to ask in faith. So maybe that is kind of difficult sometimes, to ask in faith, believing that God will... Answer our prayers. He's definitely not telling us to just sit back and wait for God to put thoughts in our mind, though. I don't believe that's what he's saying. But rather, to seek God and keep seeking where he directs us. Because God probably isn't going to speak from heaven to give us wisdom. Oftentimes, that wisdom comes from another person. That's a little harder to receive if it comes from another person. But I think that's often where God directs us, is to to seek that wisdom and to get it from another person. And the other person may not even be aware of the fact that he's an answer to God, to a prayer to God. Okay, another one is in John 14, 1, 2, and 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now this was said directly to the disciples when Jesus had told them that I'm going to leave you, and they were sad and troubled because they didn't know what to do if Jesus left. But he was telling them, don't be troubled, because I'm going to go and make a place for you, and then I'm going to come back again and receive you unto myself, that we can be together forever. Even though it was said to the disciples, I think it applies to us today too something we can 
claim for our own that Jesus is preparing a place for us and he's going to come back for us. It says, in my Father's house are many mansions. It's inferring that Jesus is going there to build a mansion, I think. And I would guess that our ideas of what a mansion is like will be pretty much worthless when we get there. It'll be far beyond what we can ever imagine. And then he's going to come back to get us and take us there. And I don't know when that's going to be fulfilled. I don't know how everything's going to work. But did Jesus come back for the disciples yet? I don't think so. They died and went to a heavenly place. I don't know where for sure. But I believe that there is coming a time when Jesus is going to come back and take us with him. And that will be more glorious than dying and going to heaven. Far more glorious. You know, it would be um, nice to have Jesus go into heaven and build a place for us and then wait until we get there and say, here you go. But it's even greater that he's going to come back and take us there. He's going to come back and escort us over there. And then also I have... uh, The Beatitudes are all promises. I'm going to read most of them. And as we go through this, note how many times it says shall. That's a pretty positive word. It's not might or perhaps, but they shall. And oftentimes when we read through these things, we focus on the conditions rather than on the promises but they're all promises with a condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are all promises with a condition to meet. Are the conditions worth the effort for the rewards? Yes, definitely. The conditions are not, diff- not too difficult, and the rewards are well worth it. There was a uh, paragraph in a commentary that I read that I thought was very good in describing, giving an overview of the promises of God. <clears throat> it says, The Word of God is filled with assurances of blessings as no other book is. Promises cover the whole period of human life. They meet us at our birth. They cluster about our childhood. They overhang our youth. They go in companies into manhood with us. They divide themselves into bands and stand at the door of every possible experience. Therefore, there are promises of God to the ignorant, poor, oppressed, discouraged, 
to every affection, to every sphere of duty, to all perils and temptations. There are promises for joy, sorrow, victory, defeat, adversity, prosperity. Old age has its garlands as full and fragrant as youth. All men everywhere and always have their promises of God. So with all those promises before us, why do we have difficulty that in... Why are there barriers that keep the promises of God from affecting us like they should? Probably the first barrier and the most important that we need to recognize is that Satan is always doing his best to discredit God and keep us from believing. And he is a very wise enemy and very crafty. His lies are very reasonable. They make sense to our mind as we think through these situations and problems and, well, but this isn't going to work and that's not going to work. They're very reasonable. They make sense to us. He likes to use our feelings against the facts. <clears throat> Amplifies our feelings till they get bigger until we can't Truly look at the facts as they are. And if we are listening to some of his lies, God's promises will have no meaning in our hearts. And then we find ourselves in the um, unwise situation of believing the father of lies and doubting the one who cannot lie. Surely we aren't that stupid to do that, are we? But that's actually what's happening when we are doubting God's promises. Another barrier or hindrance is that maybe we just don't know God's promises. If we find ourselves in a situation where we don't know what to do, take a hold and study the Bible and see what it has to say about our situation. That's not something that the flesh will want to do. But if we don't know the promises, we can't claim them for our own. We don't know what God is willing to do for us. So it's important that we know the promises. And then when we know them, believe the promises, and that's a choice. Just because we read them and know them doesn't mean we believe them, but we can choose to believe them. That's not a feeling that comes over us. All of a sudden, this feeling comes over us that we just know this is true. I mean, Sometimes there's a feeling, but don't wait for the feeling. Make the choice. And it's also not seeing the fulfillment of it necessarily. If we wait till we see the fulfillment of the promise, then that's not faith. God wants us to believe by faith. Also, be willing to meet the conditions. 
know, we said earlier that God's promises have conditions. If we're not willing to meet the conditions, God's promises won't uh, be accomplished in our lives. And the flesh will always resist meeting the conditions. It's going to be wanting to go the other way. We're going to have to deal with that. In fact, it's probably going to need to die. It says we'll need to, the Bible says to crucify the flesh. If we're going to meet the conditions for those promises to be effective, we'll need to crucify the flesh. Another situation that makes it difficult at times is the promises are delayed. They don't happen instantly. <clears throat> it says in Hebrews 11.39, after talking about many of these people of faith, it says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. So they were looking for a promise, and they never even saw it in their lifetime. But they lived by faith, knowing that what God said he will accomplish. <clears throat> And oftentimes it takes um, very difficult experiences to make the promises become real. In Psalms 3, 5, David wrote about when he was being chased by Absalom, his son. says, I laid me down and slept, I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that I have set themselves against me round about. And there's many other times in David's life that he went through great difficulties and God's promises came through for him and he, could, he uh, had experience and believed them and it gave him faith in the future. I also have a story about a song. As I was studying this, of course, the song came to mind, Standing on the Promises of God. And when I was thinking of the song, well, yeah, that's a nice song, you know, that talks about how the promises are good and all that kind of stuff. It didn't really stand out to me. But then I came across this story of the author of the song, and suddenly it was a little more meaningful. This was written by Russell Carter back in 1886. It says, Carter gave his life to the Lord when he was 15. And he was faithful in serving the Lord and later became an instructor at an academy as well as a coach, ordained minister, doctor, musician, and songwriter. But like many, Carter only learned to truly rest on God's promises when he was faced with a really difficult situation. He was faced with illness and probable death at the age of 30 from a critical heart condition. And of course, he didn't want to die. He felt he was effective in serving the Lord, and why is God taking his life when he's so young? But one of his teachers wrote of him that finally he knelt and made a promise that healing or no, his life was finally and forever consecrated to the service of the Lord. So he allowed God to make that choice. Is he going to die or not? After that, Scripture took on a new life for Carter. 
he truly began to lean on the promises that he found in the Bible. Because he chose to believe in those promises that God is in control and all things work together for good. God ended up adding more years to his life after that. He didn't die at 30 like he was expecting. So some of the verses of his song, as I read them, suddenly it it was a little different as reading these uh, stanzas because you know the history that this man was facing death and finally gave up his will to God and claimed the promises. Standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises, I now can see perfect present cleansing in the blood for me. Standing in the liberty where Christ makes free. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord. Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword. Standing on the promises of God. That one verse is different than what we have in our books, which I thought was a, a good verse. But <clears throat> Anyway, the reality of that when he faced death. And I think that we can go through this sermon like this and hear all these words, and yeah, they're good. But if we really face a situation where we only have God's promises left. That's when they become meaningful to us. So in um, conclusion here, we have over 3,000 promises in the Word of God. They apply to every situation in life and death and eternity. And to every age from unborn to ready to die, made by the everlasting God who created the world, who said these promises are more sure than earth itself. Let us take courage, believe the promises, and go on to perfection.